0: Well, guys, one of the things we like to do here at Crosspoint is, when we start a new book of the Bible, is we like to spend a little bit of time doing an overview of the book. So, part of this sermon is going to be less about the first set of verses and more about just an overview and introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. And then after that, we'll move on and look at chapter one, verses one through eleven. So, a couple things: number one, the author. The person who wrote this book is almost certainly Solomon. Now, that's not a consensus. There's some people that think it wasn't Solomon, but there's a few keys that would indicate that. Number one is that in chapter 1, verse 1, the speaker introduces himself as son of David, king in Jerusalem, which very much fits the description of Solomon. It's also a wisdom book, which is um, something he's known for writing. You've got his handprints all over the book of Proverbs as well. So that sounds a lot like him. In chapter 2, there's a lot of references to him saying, look, I gathered and accumulated a lot of wisdom more than anyone else before me, which again fits the description of what we know about the King of Sol- the King Solomon um, in the rest of our scriptures. Um, another thing I want us to see here that's a little bit nuanced, is that you really kind of have two authors here. You've got the speaker, and the speaker is the guy that just starts. In chapter 1, verse 1, he's the one talking the bulk of the time. Um, But then there's a different person introduced who's more of the author. So imagine there's a guy that's presenting these sayings from this speaker, but behind it, there's an intention of this author who's put these things together, written them down, and then he gets kind of the last word At the end of the book. And you see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. This should be on the screen. He says, Besides being wise, the preacher, that's who's been talking the whole time, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And then lastly, I want us to consider the idea that ultimately the author of this book, as with any other book of scripture, is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 12, verse 11, he says, The words of the wise are like goads, and, they, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd so you've kind of got three entities here, right You've got the speaker who's talking for most of the book. you've got the author who's kind of collected these things the speaker is said is' presenting them and behind that you've got the Holy Spirit who's inspired these words and put them in our scriptures as the very words of the Lord that we can read today. Um, so that's a little bit about the author. number two key characteristics. Um, We're just going to look at two things here. Number one, this book is very different. It can be very difficult to read. If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you may have gotten halfway through it and been like, never mind, forget this, I'm going to jump back over to John or something like that. Um, It's a book that can be a little confusing. It can be very difficult. It kind of goes to some some dark thoughts and some dark places. But we don't want to miss that. Um, Because without the book of Ecclesiastes and similar passages... What you might have is a collection of writings that just seem very, my head is in the sand, um, pie in the sky, ideas of God, a very um, idealistic view of things. The book of Ecclesiastes, the guy goes into, yeah, but what about this, right? Yeah, you say that if you do these things the right way, good things will happen, but what about when they don't? Then what? It's like he's looking out at the world and he's seeing all the things that seem to contradict some of the other things we see in parts of God's scripture, kind of calls that out, wrestles with it, and then draws conclusions from it. Um, So it is very different. It is very difficult to read. I want to show you a quick video clip kind of illustrating that and the whole uh, multiple authors thing. This is from the Bible Project. The whole clip's about seven minutes long. We're just going to watch a couple snippets of it, but let's watch the first one now. (laughs)
1: We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life.
2: But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success? Yes. You'd better think again. Because life here under the sun is meaningless.
1: And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this
2: book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices.
1: So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the
2: one who's collected the critic's words and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word.
0: Let me give you another way to think about this. Um, If you've not done so yet, I would encourage you to, um, it's online now, you can just rent it and watch it at home, but do your patriotic duty of watching Top Gun Maverick. Um, It's a fantastic film. Um, There's a scene in this film where you've got all these hotshot pilots sitting around. They think they're hot stuff and they know everything. And then the instructor, Maverick, who's like the best of the best of the best, he walks in and he takes their instruction manual about how an F-18, that aircraft, operates, how it works, how it functions. And, you know, it's kind of cheesy, kind of dramatic, but he throws it in the trash can like, this is all, you know, forget what you know about this. I'm going to teach you what it's really like to fly. That's almost what we see in the approach of the writer of Ecclesiastes. It's like, look, Proverbs says all these good things. They're true. I'm glad you know them. But let's talk about what life is really like in the driver's seat. Because you're going to see some things that don't always seem like they accord perfectly um, with what you see in the instruction manual. And so we need that, though. It's good for us. And we're going to wrestle with it with him as he wrestles with these realities that he's seeing in the world and how they relate to those instructions that were given in other parts of Scripture. So it's very different. Number two... It has one main point. A lot of times when we would introduce a book, we would say, here's like four or five key themes. There's only one main point in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's making all these observations. He's wrestling. Why does this happen? Well, you say this, but what about that? There's this like wrestling and this tension, and then it all resolves in the end with one statement, Um, and that statement is this. In chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, the end of the matter, when everything has been considered, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So it's this series of long, complex, elaborate questions within a short, simple answer in the end. In fact, if you were going to do an outline of the book of Ecclesiastes, it would be very simple. There would be only two points to it. The first point of the outline, which would be like 99% of the book, and this will be on the screen so you can take a picture of it in a minute. Once the camera comes in the top right corner, it's kind of a long quote. Once you see that camera, it means the slide's complete. You can take a picture if you're taking notes that way. But the outline is basically two points. Number one, this an uncomfortably blunt, disjointed, and disturbed inner dialogue about how so much of life is heavily or vapor. That's the word vanity, meaninglessness. And then at the end, you do see some glimmers of hope and some good things along the way, but just little bits and pieces of that, mostly just this uncomfortably blunt dialogue. But then in the end, you see a very simple conclusion, which we read just a minute ago. So it's all that with a simple conclusion at the very end. So that's basically the outline of the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're gonna watch another part of that uh, video clip to kind of illustrate some more of that.
2: Now throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. Nearly 40 times he says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious.
1: It takes one shape and before you know it, it takes a new shape.
2: And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers.
1: And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly.
2: Now our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate Hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable.
1: So, what are we supposed to
2: do with all of this? Well, surprisingly, the critic, first of all, acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. He says it's a really good idea to learn wisdom and to live in the fear of the Lord.
1: Really? I mean, he just said that doesn't guarantee success.
2: But he knows it's the right thing to do. But secondly, and more often, he says that since you can't control your life, you should stop trying. Learn to hold things with an open hand because you really only have control over one thing, and that's your attitude towards the present moment. Stop worrying, he says, and choose to enjoy a good conversation with a friend, or the sun on your face, or a good meal with
1: people that you care about. The simple things in life.
2: Yes, and both the good things and the bad, because both are rich gifts from God. And that's the
1: surprising wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Listening to the critic is painful and can lead you into some dark places.
2: And that's why the author speaks up at the end of the book. Mm. He doesn't want you to lose hope, he wants to make you humble. into someone who trusts that life has meaning even when you can't make sense of it, that one day God will clear the hevel and bring his justice on all that we've done. And so he tells us that the proper response to all of this is to fear the
1: Lord And keep his commandments. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes.
0: So let's talk a little bit about how to read this book as we move through it. I'm just going to give you a couple points here. Number one read with the end in mind. Um, It can be a little daunting and a little dark to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes, read one passage, and then just kind of stop there and sit with it for a week. If you don't remember and recall the idea that towards the end of this book, there is some resolve in the verses that we read just a moment ago. Now, let me disclaim that real quick, because what I don't want us to do is miss the tension. Because in these difficult passages, when he's asking these hard questions, he's being extremely honest um, in a way that can be refreshing for us. So he's basically saying things like this, like, yeah, you say that if you... Do certain things, you make good decisions, good things will happen to you. Well, you know what? I've made the right decisions, I've taken care of things the way I was supposed to, and the cancer still came. That's part of life. That happens, and he's addressing that very bluntly and very head-on. And so we don't want to just dismiss that tension because it would rush past the people, maybe you're one of them, who see things working out in a way that bad things happen even when you do the right things, and what do we do with that? This book helps us embrace that tension and say it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to be bothered by that, and yeah, we're going to see some resolve. We're going to see some hope. Well, let's embrace that tension, but let's not embrace it so strongly that we lose the end because this book wasn't meant to be read over the course of 12 weeks, it's just about what we're going to take to preach it, right? He didn't write this book thinking you would read part of chapter one and all those dark thoughts, set it aside for a week, come back later, read the rest of chapter one, set it aside and like a month later, right, two months later, three months later, get to the end where there's some resolve. So when you want to, as we preach it, we're going to keep coming back to those final verses because we need to see those um, in light of the rest of the book. And number two, read in light of the gospel. Um, There's an advantage we have in reading this book and some of these hard questions where he gets some resolve at the end, right, when he starts talking about fear God, keep his commandments, when all has been considered. I would say that on this side of the cross, we have even more insight into that. So some of the hard questions he asks, we have answers even beyond what he could see because we know the rest of the story with Jesus coming um, and dying in our place and reconciling us and giving us, restoring our purpose and meaning in a way that he didn't even understand, most likely, while he was writing this. Um, So Jesus offers this hope beyond even what the author of this book could see. There's a commentator I read, Douglas O'Donnell, who's also a pastor, and he talks about the need for us to, even though The book of Ecclesiastes doesn't necessarily directly reference or point to Jesus the need for us to remember Jesus as we walk through it. And he said this, so woe to me if I teach through Ecclesiastes as though Jesus had never touched his feet on this vain earth. And I love that. I love that idea that we get to read it in a way where there is even more hope than it had when it was originally written because we know the story of of Jesus. Um, And so that's kind of an intro. Now we're going to move on and look at the first 11 verses in chapter 1. And just basically two general ideas are put forth here. The first is this, that our accomplishments and lives are vapor. That's that word hevel. That's that when it says vanity of vanities, all is vanities at the beginning. That word is actually vapor. It's that word of it's here today and you try to grab it and it's gone. That's what he's saying our lives and our accomplishments are. Look in chapter 1 verse 3. He says, "What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun?" What's the point? Where's the purpose? We work, we eat, we drink, we sleep, we strive, and for what? Now, He's going to elaborate on this a lot more in the coming chapters, so I don't want to spoil all of the meaninglessness of it in one sermon. Um, We'll leave some of that on there for you. But he's basically saying that all of life could be prefaced with this idea of, hey, not that this really matters in the grand scheme of things, but... right." You've said that in conversations. You'd be talking about something that kind of feels important at the time, and it may matter for that day or maybe for that week, but then you know you're going to move on from it. And you say, hey, look, not that it matters in the grand scheme of things, but... Dot, dot, dot. And he's kind of like blanketing our entire lives that way. Saying that our lives are here today, gone tomorrow. They're very temporal. They're be- very fleeting. You can strive. You can make all kinds of accomplishments. But in the de- at the end of the day, it's vapor. It's fleeting. Verse 4. A generation, co- generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains Forever. There's a guy named St. Jerome, lived in the 300s and wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes. Really, really, think about this being written 1,700 years ago. Um, And he said this about this verse comparing how man as God's image bearers who were meant to be put on the earth, Adam and Eve were meant to live forever on the earth in harmony with God. And yet because of the fall, now man is the one who comes and goes while the earth remains. And he says this, What is more a vanity of vanities than the fact that the earth endures, although it was made for the benefit of man, while man himself, the master of the earth, suddenly crumbles into dust? So it's this irony that we as humans seek meaning and purpose while we are on the earth. And yet the earth itself seems to have infinitely more longevity and sustainability than we do, even though it was made for us and not the other way around. Where is the meaning in this when everything is so temporal and fleeting in our lives? He's wrestling with the idea that in the grand scheme of things, in the course of history, we are just a blip on the radar, a flash in the pan, here today, gone tomorrow. And then he illustrates this with different elements of creation. He talks about the sun in verse 5. He says, "The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises." He's imagining the sun is just a circle going round and round. You ever hear someone say in the midst of a conversation that doesn't seem to be going anywhere, like a lot of words are being exchanged, but no progress is being made in the conversation, someone will say, man, it just feels like we're talking in circles at this point. That's kind of the implication he's giving is like life is just kind of going in circles. There's no trajectory. There's no purpose. There's no accomplishment. It's just spinning around and around like the sun. Then he says the wind, chapter 1, verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. The wind, like the sun, has no progress, no seeming accomplishment, just hands of a clock moving around and around in a circle as time passes. And then thirdly, he says the streams in verse 7, all the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So he's kind of looking at this idea of imagine like a big, great Roaring River, maybe the Mississippi or the Missouri or the uh, Snake River in Idaho, whatever it is, some just massive or maybe even picture like a waterfall, like Niagara Falls, of all this massive amount of energy and matter just coming and flowing. And he says, and all that work, all that movement, right, all that progress, and where does it go? Into the sea for what? For nothing. It goes into the sea All that work, all that energy, and nothing really changes. It just keeps pumping more water, but you don't see any change. You don't see anything being accomplished by all that work. And he's saying that's how life feels sometimes. That you're working, you're doing all these things, but at the end of the day, when all is said and done, it's all a vapor. It's all here today and gone tomorrow. The next thing he says is that man is distanced from God by the fall. This is the idea we see in verses like verse 9 when he says this, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. So he says our accomplishment and lives are vapor, and that man has been distanced from God by the fall. This phrase, under the sun, is an interesting phrase. You see it repeated a lot. In this book. And it's this idea that everything we do, see, feel, hear is happening in this context of this broken world where our lives are just dust, that we come and go from this world. And there's pain and there's toil and there's difficulty under the sun. There's a commentator, Douglas O'Donnell, who said it this way The phrase, under the sun, draws a geographical line between God who is in heaven. And man who lives on earth or under the sun. What is found on earth? The thorn, the thistle, infested ground, our sun soaked, sweaty toil of the ground, our bodies dying and returning to the ground. That is not found with God in heaven. We are under the sun, and He is above the sun. So these are the meditations He's walking us through. So, What's the application here? What do we draw from this? What do we learn? What do we walk away from when we consider these things? What do we walk away with? We're going to look at three things. Number one... We're going to find true wisdom by considering these things. He's basically saying, and he'll say later on in some other chapters, I even tried to pursue wisdom. Maybe there's the meaning, right? Maybe there's something solid I can grab onto that's not vapor. Then he says, even that is vapor, right? Because the guy who seeks wisdom and the guy who doesn't, guess what? They both die. What did he gain by seeking that wisdom? So then at the end of the book, he appeals to this greater idea that maybe the true source of wisdom isn't something we can understand by looking in and among this world and the things we can see and hear and touch. Maybe true, reliable wisdom comes from something beyond the sun, something bigger, something greater, something more eternal, which is why he concludes the book with at the end of the day, when all is said and done, true wisdom is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. That we can think and talk all day until we're blue in the face about all the things we could pursue and go after and accomplish and achieve. At the end of the day, the only reliable thing we have, the thing that is the true path of wisdom is to fear God and keep his commandments. Number two, we're reminded of our true home. One of the things he does a great job of in this book is pulling our hope off of the things that are temporary. And you guys know this. It's often tempting in life to, maybe it's a vacation, maybe it's a life stage, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a house, a possession, a a level of income. To look at something that's ahead in the future that That promises things to us and think once I have that, then we'll be good. And we put our hope in things. And he's saying that all these things we would put our hope in under the sun here on this earth will disappoint because they too are vapor they're not ultimately going to satisfy us. And by realizing that all these things that happen under the sun are vapor, we're reminded that what we are really longing for is promised in the gospel, right? That what we're really longing for is an eternal impact and reconciliation with God that transcends the here and now and all the things that come and go, which are temporal and vapor. And that's where the picture of the gospel comes in, right? That That's what we long for. We have that eternity in our hearts. He talks about that in chapter 3, and yet everything we see and hear seems so fleeting and temporal, and there's this tension there. One of the ways we see that tension resolved that he didn't see in his time is that Jesus would enter into our vapor, right? That the God of heaven who did not exist under the sun but transcended those things would take on flesh, enter into our broken world, into our toil, into our heat, into our sweat, blood, and tears, and pay the penalty and the price that needed to be paid in order for us to transcend these temporal fleeting things under the sun and be reconciled back into eternal relationship with our God who is in heaven, where he is preparing our true home that we will one day receive if we trust and believe in Jesus. And then thirdly, we're reminded of the eternal impact that we can have. That when we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we fear Him and when we know Him, we are actually in some sense having an eternal impact because we are achieving the very purpose for which we're created. The writer in Ecclesiastes, he's striving for purpose. What's the point? What's the meaning? Where can that be found? And at the end of the day, fear God. Why? Because God is the one who created us with a purpose. As it says in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man, the very reason for our existence is to glorify God, bring glory to him, and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose for which we we're created. So when we embrace that and we do things like sing songs, declaring the worth and the value of God in our hearts are filled with gladness because of it, we are embracing something that transcends what we can see and hear on this earth, we are embracing something that's got more substance than the vaporous things of this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about the idea that when we serve God, when we spend our time and our treasure and our lives on things of the Lord, advancing the gospel, building the church, we are actually investing in things that do transcend the vaporous things of this world. And he uses this illustration that there will be a day when all our investments, all the things we've spent our time and our money and our treasure and our talents on, all those things will be put through a filter. And the things that have been invested in the purposes and kingdom of God will pass through that filter. And the things that were invested in the temporary pleasures of here and now will be burned up. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, talking about the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's one of the great benefits of this book is it, it seeks to, Put our attention on the things that seem to promise so much hope, but then remind us that those things are just vapor and that the best use of our time and our talent and our treasure is to invest in the eternal things of God's kingdom. Another example of that we could find in the book of James chapter 5, verse 19, where he says this, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think that sounds like something that matters in the grand scheme of things. That sounds like something that will transcend here and now. That sounds something like sounds like something that's not just vapor, that's not temporal, that's fleeting. That the idea is we can do things here and now on this world that will have ripples in eternity. But it's only the things that we do that pursue the kingdom of God, such as bringing a brother back from his wandering. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells the parable of four soils. And he basically says, a man went out to sow seeds. And that seed represents the message of the gospel, the kingdom of God, that he went out and sowed seeds and he threw the seed on four different soils. The first soil was rocky. It's like a path beaten down hard. He threw the gospel onto that seed and that soil represents someone's heart. That person, was their heart was hard. They didn't receive it. A bird came, snatched it, and flew off. Nothing came of it. He goes down this soil, this soil. And on the last soil, he says, the man sowed seed, he sowed gospel, truth into someone's heart. That person's, the the, the soil of their heart was fertile. They received it, and it increased to 30, 60, and 100 fold. Do you see that? Do you see how that transcends the vaporous things of this world? The idea that we can invest our time in sharing the gospel with people, and by doing so, it has the potential to have ripples from generation to generation that will impact the status of eternity for that person and beyond. So when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're reminded that we can have an eternal impact by investing ourselves into his kingdom and his purposes. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we move through this book, you would help us to embrace the tension of it. Um, God, I pray that for 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 many, this would be a what may seem to some as drudgery and and um uh maybe skepticism would, would be to others a breath of fresh air, of, of honesty, and looking at the world and asking some hard questions and be comforted that we we can ask those questions. We can we can look at the difficulties we face and be troubled and unsettled by it and that that's okay. That ultimately you have the answer, but that doesn't always take away the difficulty and the struggle here and now. God, would we find encouragement in that as we move through this book? And God, ultimately I pray that our, our minds would be released from putting our hope in so many of the things that are here now that are temporal and fleeting and vapor.